0: This is Hannah Arendt Between Worlds, a podcast co-produced by the Goethe Institute and Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. I'm your host, Samantha Rose Hill. years after the Berlin Wall came down, city officials launched a competition for a work of public art honoring the memory of Jewish citizens of Berlin who were murdered in the Holocaust. Renate Schdi and Frieder Schnuck won the competition and instilled Places of Remembrance, a permanent street exhibition documenting the anti-Semitic laws and decrees imposed by the Nazis. The exhibition is composed of 80 brightly painted signs affixed to lampposts throughout the city with short text describing the specific anti-Jewish laws. You know, it's not offensive, but it's there.
1: And that creates an uncomfortable feeling, including this information. And then we connected these texts with objects,
0: objects of memory, In The Human Condition, Hannah Arendt talks about how art is a form of work that helps to fabricate the world that we inhabit. We make the world with our hands, and art can be used to help us remember the past. How do we remember the past today? How do we remember something as horrific as the Holocaust In this episode with Renata and Frieder, we talk about what it means to make a memorial and the work of remembering in history and how we can create immediacy in the present moment to help understand the past while shedding light on the present.
2: If you are emotional, for sure, you can create something in your studio and hopefully someone will react to it or buy it, whatever. But if you really want to connect to society, you really have to know what the society is about.
0: The 20th century cultural critic Walter Benjamin appears in our conversation as a companion in thinking. Benjamin was a dear friend of Arendt's who also served as inspiration for Renata and Frieder's approach to making this memorial.
1: How do you build up, you know, the passerby? What do they do?
0: Renata Shti and Frieder Schnuck are a Berlin-based artist duo. Their works deal primarily with collective memory and society. Please join me in welcoming Renata and Frieder. in Berlin. I want to go back to Berlin. In 1993, you won an open competition to design a memorial for uh, Jewish people from Berlin who had been murdered in the Holocaust. And it's titled Places... Of remembrance. Can you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about this piece and how you thought with Arendt or perhaps against her in, in designing this memorial in Schöneberg? a neighborhood where she once lived. Yes. Well, Schöneberg is a very kind of diverse bourgeois area
1: and uh, has a huge history, despite looking so boring nowadays. <laughs> it hosted the West Berlin Senate until the wall came down in uh, 89. And also, it's the place where John F. Kennedy visited in 63 and spoke that really famous sentence, Ich bin ein Berliner, on the balcony of the Sch- Schöneberg Town Hall and uh, in 67 that's where student revolution started because the Shah of Persia came with his secret police, and they started beating up students who were demonstrating against the Shah. And so it's a quite a vibrant, should I say, vibrant area. When you walk around today, of course, what you see is our memorial, very much so. It's an overlay over a whole urban structure, and it's uh, 80 signs installed on lampposts. And on one side, you see a text, and on the
0: other side, you see a picture that relates somehow to the text Can you give us an example of of what a what one of those images and the text might be? Yeah,
1: well, they are anti-Jewish laws and regulations, which we took and rewrote and uh, put it in a snappy, shortened language like headlines. And then we installed it on lampposts. Like That's like a usual way of doing things with advertisement and so on. I mean, New York has that too. And in, in Berlin, it was quite common turn of 19th century to have this kind of installation. And that's what we picked up and spread it out over that area. And so these 80 signs prove actually that there is evidence. You know, we we love to expose things in public space and say, well, this is the crime that has been committed. Nobody can say they didn't know.
0: There's an immediacy to these signs. You wrote them in the present tense. So they're quite arresting when you're walking down the street and suddenly you see a sign that says, Jews are not allowed to buy food between four and five o'clock in the afternoon.
1: That's true. That wasn't purpose. It was this immediate, as you say, immediacy. And I can tell you when we installed the first signs in the streets, though we had permission and all this, you know, public permits, what you need, administrative permits. Somebody called the police and it it was an uproar. It was a shock to people and they thought we were putting up anti-Semitic slogans. And then, of course, the whole thing calmed down and and the discussion started, but it came as a shock to people. And what we did with this present tense and the text was that we also set the actual date underneath When this regulation or law was released. So you have this sandwich system, which is how we call it, a double layer of things. And you can really walk this urban environment and create your own memorial that way. Right, Frieder? I mean...
2: Yes, it needed some days to install the signs and our two workers were not convinced that there is a need for this memorial. And when they put up a a cat Uh, And on the other side of that sign, there is a text, uh, Jews are not allowed to have household pets. And the date underneath is um, February 15, 1942. And uh, someone opened the window and yelled down to us when we were installing the signs, go away Jewish pigs. And our workers were completely shocked. And the date is special because it's five days before uh, the WANSEE conference. And for sure, there is one guy involved uh, where there's a close link to Hannah Arendt because Adolf Eichmann was uh, the guy who wrote the protocol of the uh, WANSEE conference uh, um, meeting. And for sure, they were talking about the so-called final solution. And uh, but Eichmann, uh, on the other hand, was really involved in the whole process because if you have such a regulation that uh, Jewish families can have no more dogs or cats, it means the deportation will be easier because the neighbors will not complain if there is an animal in an empty apartment with no food and no water because the family is gone. So first the, the animals have to go, and then the people can be deported.
0: When these signs initially went up around the neighborhood in Schoeneberg, it's so unsettling to me. Giselle Freund lived there, as you said, Hannah Arendt, Walter Benjamin lived in Schoeneberg, Einstein, and as we know, some of these people did not survive the war, like Benjamin. And I'm wondering how tourists, how people in the neighborhood interacted with these signs walking through the streets, aside from the anti-Semitic remarks, which were horrifying that you received while you were installing them. But In terms of explanation, of explaining the kind of logic, the slow progression of the deprivation of human rights, the daily humiliation that the Jewish people were forced to suffer, how it became a politicized act to go and buy a loaf of bread. How did you curate the conversation that unfolded after the exhibition went
1: up? The memorial, when it was installed and inaugurated, had its own life beyond us, you know, and that's actually what artwork does. That's what Max Beckmann once says. You create an artwork and then it goes to a museum and then it's not yours anymore. It becomes public property. Of course, it's our copyright and all that, and we are continuously working on things that relate to this work. We showed it at the Jewish Museum in New York. There is also an installation with an artwork that relates to the memorial at Princeton University, East Pine Hall. But it's also, you know, schools use it on their own way. Or Michael Moore quoted it in one of his films to kind of suggest that actually Where to wait next? Actually, to suggest that a similar memorial on slavery should be done on uh, Wall Street and so on. So these things have people have their own thoughts about it. And I have to say that very little has been damaged probably because it's nine feet installed nine feet high we should also say that there are three major map signs we work a lot with mapping systems forever and ever and uh, maps is something that really interests us and here we have a double layered map one from 33 and the other from 93 the year of the inauguration and so people can see also how this urban structure has changed due to war and bombing and that and it didn't get rebuilt the same way. So
0: there's a dialogic element to the installation work that you do. You don't just make art objects that people look at. I'm thinking of the uh, memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, which is also in Berlin, a memorial I've always found very um, troubling. I don't like it. I'll just say that. And I mean, we can talk about taste or not, but there's, you know, when you see these signs and places of remembrance, you're taken aback. You're actually physically forced to stop and think as Arendt might've said about what it is that you are encountering. A familiar place becomes unfamiliar or your work bus stop also is a work that physically is in, in, and mentally and psychically, emotionally engaging your audience. And so I'm wondering how you think about that process of curating the interaction between the people who are going to come into contact with these objects um, while you are creating them.
1: Conversation, yes. I mean a dialogue. It's probably because we have to create a dialogue, Frida and I, when we work on things. And believe me, we thoroughly disagree on many things. Yeah. And it takes a long time till we agree on this big project. So we have our own areas where we work on. And then on these kind of public activities, we have to connect our forces because it's like making a film. Need a team. You need to rethink it. And if I hate one thing, it's stupidity. I mean, a lack of intelligence in something, or déjà vu art, or you know, these things that are just decorative and repeat themselves endlessly, like at art fairs. It's just boring. So the thing is, yes, the conversation with an audience is, of course, based on somehow, innocently, on Benjamin's theories. How do you build up, you know, the passers-by? What do they do? How do you walk? And very often, I thought, of course, Frido and I are familiar with Benjamin, and very much so with his work. We live, basically, in the area in Tiergarten, where Benjamin lived. And every, like, every three houses, Benjamin had a room or something, and that's where we live. And, and many scholars come by and say, oh, wow, you." live here in Benjamin's area, close by Magdeburger Platz. I have
0: pictures of myself there. Oh, you did. Stalking Wonderful. Benjamin in uh, Berlin. So wow. I didn't know I was so close to you.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> um, and of course, we followed Benjamin's traces. I mean, that's what you also do. You follow throughout Europe. That's what we did. We went to Portbou and looked at the area. And it's very moving, I have to say. When you think that one of the most important thinkers... For sure, an impossible person. The more I know about Benjamin, the more I think, good that I didn't know him in a way, but I love what he said and what he thought. And very often I think, what would he say about the reproducibility of things when he would see how Frida and I work together on an image digitally, that we connect from two images, one of Frida's, one of mine, or put other things in there and layer it over. And it's a completely different way of working and still based on traditional painting, where you also paint over layer and layer and layer. You know, it's just this kind of process. And he recognized it, of course. And of course, you can reproduce it a million times and multi-million times today because you do it digitally and you throw it out on the web and then people can approach it or not. So it's quite an interesting dialogue with Benjamin. But my thing about Benjamin is his memories of childhood. I had also a wonderful childhood and went for walks with my grandparents and my parents. And I loved repeating and repeating over and over the streets, the houses, and everything I saw, my typical Town child, I would say. I, nature is okay, but not too
0: long. <laughs> <laughs> when Arendt when Arend met Benjamin in Paris, in exile, you know, of course they were first cousins through her first marriage to Gunther Stern, but when they really met, um, Benjamin was writing Berlin childhood around 1900. And it's very easy to imagine them having conversations in his tiny flat. About it. But I think one of the things that you're touching on that, of course, was very much at the center in some ways of Benjamin's work on art in the age of mechanical reproducibility and author as producer and the storyteller, and Arendt's work on the crisis of culture and is the commodification of art in modernity and the way in which that not only devalues. Experience and kind of forecloses spaces for critical engagement and thinking, but is also in a way dehumanizing and turns us away from the world that we share in common.
2: We have to pass that message on to the next generation, and that's why we picked images that have links to child. illustrations so we wanted kids to ask their parents or their grandparents why is that image there why is that cat up there and they have to come up with an explanation and a story and the same is true to the bus stop project you mentioned already our project for the memorial to the murdered jews in europe we said People have to take their time and go to the places that are all over Europe, not only Sachsenhausen, not only Buchenwald, places of hard labor, places of death marches. And when you go on such a trip, for example, to Poland, uh, to Grosser Rosen or to Auschwitz, you might feel the need to talk. And dialogue is back again, because when you go together with someone, either you walk in the Bavarian quarter or you sit on a bus, you can talk about what you have seen, what you experienced and what you think about. And uh, that's the background. And as you said, a dialogue is really important.
0: There's also in both of these exhibitions an element of movement. And now you've put Benjamin in my mind. We're talking about Arendt, but Benjamin's not going to leave now. But in Arendt's essay on Benjamin that was published in a couple of places, which she originally wrote in German, she talks about the flaneur. And both of these exhibition pieces have a lot to do with movement. Unlike a gallery space where you're standing in front of a painting or you go and stand in front of a wall or a sculpture, these require that you walk, that you get on a bus, that you go somewhere. Can you talk about the importance of movement and thinking? Well, moving and thinking
1: always impressed me in cloisters because you walk in squares, And then you can cross, and you pass by a fountain in the middle, and then you take another way. Cloisters are the quintessential think tanks, I think till today. Yeah, they are. And I always thought when I was sitting at school and we were sitting behind each other, I thought how stupid. We should be walking in squares in a cloister and have total silence. The other thing is really silence. And I think that's why it's wonderful to walk in a park. And to experience this kind of sound of trees and, you know, uh, you alone with your thoughts and these kind of movements of nature. I mean, park is a civilized nature, so it's not too bad. However, it is such a thing that you walk and you think is probably something very liberating. Liberating, it sets ideas free. And that was also sort of an idea for the Bavarian Quarter because they wanted to have a memorial, a stable, you know, a memorial on the Bavarian Square in the middle of the Bavarian Quarter. And Frieda and I looked at it, and it was like a re constructed square with mishmash sculptures and fountains and some weird old benches after the war. You know, they redid it. And uh, there are two subway lines. There is a noisy street and so on. And I mean, if you have such a place, why would you do that? There is already a sculpture. So why would you do that? And so we said, no, we'll spread it out and we will make it... Unavoidable. Uh, You know, really directly translated from German. People will have to face it over and over again if they want to, because what Frieda always points out is you have to raise the head a little bit. And then you see the sign. And many people lived there for years. They, they don't see it because it's hanging a little bit higher. And it's also not too large. So, you know, it's not offensive, but it's there. And that creates an uncomfortable feeling, including this information. And then we connected these texts with objects objects of memory, if you want so. They relate to a lot of stories from our friends, from our families. There is a lot of things are built in. The book has to be written about it still. But they are also banal. You know, you have an ashtray. You have uh, whatever, a powder dose,
0: and just things, daily things. These are familiar images, and there's there's a rich materiality them, which you've juxtaposed, perhaps in this Benjaminian, Brechtian fashion, that's very jarring, that's very political, and kind of unsettles that invitation to look at these images when you encounter them.
2: And as we found out that today, most of the people are looking on their smartphones only, we are glad to have an app for the memorial. And with the app, it's easy for people to experience the memorial from far away. You can use it while walking and uh, there are translations in different languages. And uh, so if you cannot read German, uh, you uh, click it and you get uh, a translation and you can make your way
0: and you're you're forcing people who are constantly looking down while they're walking these days to look up uh if you if you if you download the app I want to come back to dialogue for a second because, Renata, you brought up silence. And silence is very important to Arendt. She talks about thinking as the silent dialogue of thought, the two in one conversation that I have with myself as a kind of space where the self consciousness can engage with the conscience. Can you maybe talk a little bit about more about silence? I'm curious to, yes, the importance of silence and dialogue and art. Well, I like silence because I'm an
1: only child, so I think silence is wonderful. Though I never have silence, I usually have three screens on. Two are without sound and one is with sound. And then I can, you know, be, just to have a, like an overview, media and film is one of my passions, let's say. I teach it and I write about it. And we also do videos, so uh, programs or whatever. But silence is, of course, wonderful when you, when you read and when you think Then you come to a conclusion. You know, we found out that uh, Albert Einstein, who lived in Haberlandstraße number four in the Bavarian quarter, that first of all, nobody could disturb him while he was working and and so on. They would just give him some food and he would eventually come out once and so on. But he also had some secret chambre de bonne, you know, rooms where he would silently meet his mistresses. (laughs) I think he was a sexaholic. if I'm not mistaken, but it's a very interesting story about him. And, you know, you wander around the Bavarian quarter and you think, where were these rooms where, you know, Einstein would just sneak in to meet someone? No, but silence is something that comes with, as I said, with thought and with creating a concept. I mean, you can't fill yourself up with images and with sound and whatever but then when you come out with it it you have to be silent so frido and i tend to work each of us in his own space and then we come together and discuss it and then if we don't come to a conclusion we go to our space again, and then we come together again. It's basically like that. And sometimes I collect material on email and send it to him, despite the fact that he's not far away. I mean, this are just, I think this new kind of media exchange conversation is simply made for me. I was always waiting for it, to have such a multi, multiple possibilities to do things. So you can have a conversation, but in silence. You don't have to speak. You can just think and then send it over and you get an answer and then you you come out and do things together. I was also thinking about when did I meet Hannah Arendt first? This is actually an interesting story, because I think my generation somehow, Hannah Arendt was very important. Of course, we learned about Eichmann trials everywhere in Europe. You would learn that at school, or I mean with free Europe. And so I remember the Günther Gauss interviews. They were shown on German public television over and over again what I maybe I didn't understand everything as a little girl my parents spoke about it but she smoked yes (laughs) she was a chain smoker she smoked and Günther Gau smoked and they were both in a cloud and it was like a caricature and of course my parents being intellectuals smoked too and so I, as at a younger age, I started smoking, and then later I gave it up. All my grand-aunts, everybody who was thinking, was also smoking. Thinking and smoking was one thing. And so years later, Frieder, I think, has similar memories of, of Günter Gau's interviews. Frieder and I studied, uh, studied photos of German emigrants in America, And believe me, each and every one was holding a cigarette. These black and white photos were always with a pose, and it was always with a cigarette. Not only Hannah Arendt, but I'm just looking at Max Beckmann, Hedy Lamar, Gropius, and Mies, of course, Mies van der Rohe, and Billy Wilder. I mean, they all smoked in every photo. So we created a series on smoking. The series is called Smoking Emigrants. And that's where we connect space and place and person. And it's uh, and of course Hannah Arendt. We did several on Hannah Arendt because she smoked everywhere and wherever. Riverside
2: Drive, right. yes. And oh, Yes, Riverside
1: that. Drive. Of course, we went there and looked at the house. But but actually, I mean, I'm sure she smoked in the park and and everywhere. So a bunch of collectors have ordered these, and we have even Central Park and written over it. Hannah Arendt smoked here because I'm Riverside sure Riverside
0: Park was the park where she used to go sit and walk watch people. She wrote a poem, I'm sure. about, she wrote a poem about it in 1943. I want to talk a bit about the relationship and the tension between politics and art. And this is a A debate that is ongoing in our contemporary society today, should art be political? And it is an often controversial conversation. I think it's in the crisis of culture, Arendt says that the common element that connects art and politics is that they're both phenomena of the public world. But the artist works alone in isolation, to create and then put something in the public world well, politicians, people who engage in political action, are actors and speakers who go out into the street and, and speak and act and protest. So they're, they're similar, but they're different activities in the way that she breaks them down. And I'm thinking, since you were talking so beautifully about smoking, <laughs> I'm thinking about how Arendt guarded her workday. You know, she wouldn't even take lunch appointments with people until she was done writing. And she would sit in her study at 370 Riverside Drive and lay on her couch and she would smoke and think. And then she said that she wouldn't write. She wouldn't go over to her typewriter until she could take dictation from herself. So uh, there's the relationship between smoking and thinking, but also her writing, which was very political, is happening in this kind of private space. Your work, which is very political, uh, you're sitting alone in silence together separately in conversation. Should art be political? Does art have an ethical obligation to contribute to the public sphere?
2: If you want to have an impact on society you really have to know the society. You have to go out, you have to meet people. For example, the Bavarian Quarter, we did uh, recordings with a hidden mic. We were asking stupid questions to the flaneurs, to the passers-by, uh, to learn something, what they know about history, what they know about the Jewish population in this area. Uh, that's one example. And for example, for the BASTO project, we went to the WANSE conferences, a research center and looked up the material because during that time you didn't have um, Wikipedia, whatever. You really had to go go for the books and and look for the files and and put uh, the stuff together and to have an impact on society. And you better have good data. And um, if you are emotional, for sure, you can create something in your studio and hopefully someone will react to it or buy it, whatever. But if you really want to connect to society, you really have to know what the society is about.
0: I'm wondering if we can kind of complicate the term society, because Arendt draws this distinction between society and politics. And I think part of what she was worried about in the 1960s was the socialization of political life the kind of reduction of all art objects to objects of mass consumption. She talks about how modern art started as a rebellion against society. Is there a distinction in the way that you are thinking about society in politics? Would you disagree with Arendt's critique there?
1: Well, I think that's where we learn to do what we are doing. You know, in the 60s, I mean, they went out and did all kinds of things that were unconventional, that were new in the art world. It included performance and music, sound, all kinds of things, and also political activities. When you think of Joseph Beuys, who surely, with his methods, is quite crucial for our work. Wouldn't you agree, Frieder? Absolutely. But
2: but it was a time of of pop art, too. And that, I guess, is the reason why Arendt came to such a conclusion. But uh, if you look at, for example, The Beatles, and uh, you think about it as as pop, uh, there are always different sidesteps. And um, pop uh, can be aggressive, too. And if we look at the pop artists, um, we have um, different uh, figures there and uh, it's not always the same, they are individuals and uh, even if we uh, give it a label nowadays and say this is pop art, but uh, some is really critical, uh, there's a critique against capitalism and you can do it with this pop art, absolutely.
1: Well, Rauschenberg is one of those artists, right? He's a very well-educated, multi-layered artist who brings in all kinds of issues that was kind of occupying society's minds. And that you can see in his collages, in his lithographs or other prints. I think he's one of those who are very aware of the meaning and the political message comes before the image, different to Warhol, where the image comes before the political image. But still, if you show dollar bills or if you show cans or an icon like Marilyn Monroe, it is also a political statement, I think. Good art is always political. I mean, if you go back to Renaissance, you see how Piero della Francesca, how he covered up a political message inside a biblical story. And it was obvious to people who knew about, you know, the background story, but it was also a beautiful painting. Now, today, it's very often not beautiful anymore, or we have another definition of beauty. How do you
0: understand the definition of beauty to have changed?
1: Oh, well, you know, let's say till 19th century, it had to be painted beautifully. Proportions had to be exact and so on. And then shifted slowly once Impressionists took the single pixels apart in a painting and showed them. And then after that, it was deteriorating more and more into shape and color and, and beyond that. And then the use of photography and the experience with war, the documentation of war, that gave art this art push uh, thing. I'm just saying that because Frido and I took our colleagues from Uni- Berlin University to the new National Gallery yesterday, where we which is now newly renovated, beautiful, like never before, and got a whole like lifting, but the best way, and has a new art installation which goes exactly into detail into topics of the 20th century. It's a museum of the 20th century and so there are pockets and you walk into these times and see how artists react to it and all around you have some media installations because film and photography as I said were so important and nowadays it's just part of it we are so used to running images that uh, P.S. Brosnan you know the James Bond interpreter said I love to paint because it gives me some stability it is something I don't have to do with many other people, like making a film.
0: I'm thinking about the relationship between history, remembrance, the creation of art objects, which always have a shapeliness to them, an appearance in the world, and the use of public space in particular. So when we're talking about something like pop art, we're not necessarily Uh, Talking about Something that is Telling a story about Something that happened in the past Or when we're talking About kitsch Um, And I think this was part of the distinction That Arendt was perhaps Trying to draw between High art in a way And commodity culture Where Art and Poems have the ability to record stories and give voice to human experience. Um, and there's different kinds of experience. But for her, it was about the creation of meaning.
2: I agree completely. And uh, <laughs> because um, when we mentioned pop art, for sure we thought about uh, the 60s. And uh, one of the major events in the 60s was the Vietnam War, and if you think about art linked to the Vietnam War, uh, you can name A lot of artists who did uh, great stuff and brought images to the public in a different media. Whether it's photography or print or film, it's something you cannot say pop art is uh, low or whatever. They had an impact on daily life, absolutely.
1: Yes, Vietnam is something that Rauschenberg also quoted in many of his collages. Also racial topics. He was very, very strong about it. And then, on the other hand, in in Germany, you have Gerhard Richter, who took his whole family apart and brought history into his rather realistic pictures. And I have to... C- Wolf Fostel. Wolf Fostel was this political uh, artist in Berlin. You still see his sculptures with a high, uh, let's say, critique on capitalism and on a lack of solidarity in society and so on. But I have to come back to Josef Beuys, who was one of the first people to track down those relationships between humans and nature, pointing out that we are ruining our environment. And that was what he did at Documenta by with his project 7,000 Oaks, which he wanted to be deplanted. And he managed worldwide, basically even in Japan, they planted some. So you have all these different layers. Maybe, I guess, uh, Hannah Arendt wasn't so well informed. She was in academic circles, but probably not in circles with artists and also critical collectors. You have very intellectual collectors who want to have a certain
0: kind of art surrounding them. Something nourishing. You've brought up Joseph Beuys a couple of times, and I think, you know, maybe the In part cuts to a distinction that Arendt wants to insist on that I'm hearing you disagreeing with, which is that action is something that we do through speech in a public space. And it's something that we do in concert with one another's. And for her. The idea of what it meant to act in the world in that way was different from what she termed work in the human condition, homo faber, what it is that we can make with our hands. And that for her includes architecture, the creation of art objects, and the writing of poems. But I hear in the way that you're talking about Boyce and, and others, this idea that the creation of an art object is a form of action, And it's not just a form of action. You understand it to be a political act that perhaps speaks or doesn't speak. And I think that's something that aren't would have fundamentally disagreed with.
2: Yes, it, 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 the field is much more open. Art as activity. Think about Occupy Wall Street. If you hold up a sign, if you do picketing, it's all linked to performance. Uh, so the field of art is much, much wider. It's it's not only linked to objects. If it's stable, if it's like a memorial, like the Bavarian Quarter, we are lucky that it's there And we always hear the question, how long will this exhibition be up? And we say, hopefully forever, as we might need the lampposts for a longer while. And uh, so it's tricky, the whole issue.
0: But so I want to just ask maybe, uh, and you can you can decline to answer this question if you want, because I know it gets into controversial uh, political territory today. But here you created this incredibly provocative exhibition, posting anti-Semitic statements around Schoenberg. Today, in the United States, people are tearing down Civil War memorials. They're taking down statues of Thomas Jefferson. And I'm curious how you think about the contemporary conversation around memorials and what their function is or should be politically within society.
1: This installation is a memorial. And so memorials are there to be forever. That's how they are created. They are there to kind of symbolically depict a certain moment in time. Our memorial, which we created, is goes beyond that. It is kind of shifting. That's why Frieder said, we try to think what would be in 50 years. How would future generations talk to each other? And that's why we're also using language. In the arts, you often have just images. We didn't. We use image and text or text and image. And then you can relate to it. And as I said, evident, we have a proof that the crime happened. And it's also of course, dedicated to the victims of the Holocaust, but it is also, let's say, a synonym for other human rights issues, and you can see when you thoroughly look at it that in all parts of the world where uh, human rights are threatened or neglected, same laws come up again. I mean, we have that rather often that, for example, uh, at the Jewish Museum in New York, we installed this work with a video in 2003, and a guard came to us, and she said, you know, my mother was from the South, and she experienced this. She was black, and she was not allowed to sit on certain benches, and she was not allowed to drive in the front of the bus, and we are very familiar with such laws and regulations, and she reflected about it. She was a garden museum, and it was a really valuable conversation with her and so that, that is how she adapted to it and she said, "Every day I walk in and I look at your video of all the eighty signs, I am reflecting about what does it have to do with my own past and my family." And we were absolutely moved about it. So I think our memorial doesn't glorify a man on a horse that is a different thing. When you look at, yeah, a man, on that's usually a memorial. A memorial for a writer or a poet is a man on a, on a chair with a book in its hand looking down and pigeons sitting on the head of these, you know, statues and high up and so on. I loved those when I was a kid because I always thought, oh, what did they do there up there? And then you have those warriors who created wars or fought for some, cause or were sent out to do something, many of these are questions nowadays, or even destroyed. But that is, of course, completely different how we approach the moment of memory. We are storytelling people, and we tell a story, not only a story, it's no imagination, we take evidence. And we bring it out there in public, and you can read it if you like it or
0: not. And it's perhaps yeah. what Walter Benjamin might have called a dialectical object. Probably. And I think it is a dialectical
1: object. In, in in a yeah, no true. You know, the problem with the memorial was it was in German. And uh installed in ninety-three, um public art was not meant to be also a book, which we did with it, and also be translated into another language, what we wanted to do, English. And so uh, this kind of uh, reaction with the app is we are now producing many languages. We are producing one after another, and they will be uh, uploaded, and people will be able to read them. And, uh, and that's actually the right thing to do. It approaches so many areas, particularly in Europe, uh, but also outside of Europe. So um, I think it's a, good, it's a good way to do it. Yeah, the app is, is an answer. And for all these people who love to hold a device in their hand and feel lonely otherwise because they don't smoke anymore. So now they're holding this device
0: <laughs> in their hand. The, the cell phone has replaced cigarettes yes. is what you're um, saying. Yeah, that okay. is
1: also something. <laughs> thing about loneliness nowadays where people feel okay if they have a machine in their hand you know
0: but it's also turned everyone into an artist Everyone has become a photographer, everyone has become a portrait artist, everybody has become a video artist, um, and self-publishes on social media platforms. How do you engage with this kind of democratization of technology? Does it figure into your work? And (laughs) the hands are being thrown up in the air for people who can't see us. (laughs) I mean, it's
1: about let people be creative. People who are creative, they don't fight. People who sing don't make wars. You know, this is my answer. Let them be creative. That's wonderful. And then people... Th- aren't like to dance. <laughs> she liked to dance, see? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, good. We uh, used to dance too.
0: This was lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, Samantha, it was a blast. Thank you very much. Yes, it was for me. Bye bye. Hannah Arendt Between Worlds is a co-production of the Goethe Institute and Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. It was produced and edited by Lisa Bartfei, music by Dylan Mattingly, and it was hosted by me, Samantha Rose Hill. We have more episodes for you on Thinking with Hannah Arendt now. Until next time.